Welcome to my pod, Åsa Nilsson's pod, about various aspects of pain. Today I am absolutely delighted to have a guest from the United States of America, Professor Randolph Nessie, a colleague and a person that I've known for a very long time. Our interest has been in evolutionary psychiatry and Randolph Nessie is one of the most fun and interesting people to talk to. So I think we're going to have a wonderful time. It's so wonderful to see you again, Usa. And another time we'll catch up about your work in psychiatry and pain. I'm very looking forward to this. Yes. So uh, just to give a brief introduction of who you are, you were a professor of psychiatry and psychology um, in Michigan. You've also been professor at the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, and you're a founding director of the Center for Evolutionary Evolution and Medicine. Right. What did I forget? You know, probably the most important thing I've done in recent years is get the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health going. That's, that's doing very well. And, and now I'm shifting my energy back to psychiatry, our common interest, and trying to apply all we've learned about evolutionary medicine to problems of the mind. So it's, been, it's, it's all coming along, slowly but coming. How many patients are you seeing at the moment? You know, when I moved to Arizona, it would have required getting a new license and a new hospital and a new office. And I was working wow. more than full time running my center. Um, so I wasn't able to keep seeing patients. Um, I miss my patients, though, I must say. Well, I, um, I I'm also retired. And after not having seen patients for a while, I came to a point where I was sort of overwhelmed and I thought this is the end of my clinical work. So after a couple of years, I began to think, well, maybe I should start again, but mm. at a sort of slower pace, which I'm doing now. And it is very rewarding. And it is amazing the difference that it makes if you have the time to think about what you're going to do, see the patient, think about what you've done, instead of having to sort of rush from one patient to the next. So I would really um, recommend you to give it another go. Maybe, maybe I will, now that we can see patients by Zoom instead of having to drive yeah. and deal with offices and all, it's an entirely different matter. Exactly. So I would like to start this conversation the way I have started my previous conversations in this pod by talking a bit about your career choice. You first decided to become a doctor and then you decided to become a psychiatrist. Could you sort of walk us through how, how you came to the conclusion that this is what you wanted to do? Actually, first I decided I wanted to become a psychiatrist, and then I decided I wanted to become a doctor. But while I was in medical school, I kept quiet about wanting to become a psychiatrist because at least here in the United States, people don't take you seriously. And in fact, I got very interested in neurology and endocrinology and other kinds of things. Um, when I finally finished my um, medical school, I joined the faculty um, as a psychiatrist in the medical clinic. So I spent my first few years um, seeing patients with the internal medicine doctors, and that influenced me profoundly. And it also made me realize that these questions I was asking about why on earth does disease exist at all? Why didn't natural selection do a better job? Um, those applied big time in the medical clinic and with big implications for psychiatry as well. Are you saying that you were attracted to medicine and psychiatry from a sort of intellectual point of view, you sort of saw the challenge of understanding why we get sick. And this sort of brought you into your work? 
Well, you know, I, I told myself I just wanted to help people. And that was true. It was very satisfying actually helping people. Um, in retrospect, now that I'm older, I can realize it's because so many members of my family were so troubled. Um, and that I think that's the case for many of us um, in psychiatry. Um, and that, you know, is, um, one wants to help the people one loves. Of course, gradually one learns that it's not just one's family, it's everyone. It's the whole world. Family. <laughs> yes. Um, that, that has all kinds of troubles, uh, which is a, a disturbing thought, isn't it? I mean, once you, re I, in fact, I think one thing about being a psychiatrist, I'm not sure if it occurred to you, uh, but, but in, now that I'm a little bit distant from it, it's, it's somewhat traumatic to see so many people who seem so fine on the outside, and then you realize after you talk with them that they're really miserable or terribly troubled, they're struggling constantly not to drink or, or not to gamble or, or something. And uh, it's really hard to realize just how many people have such troubles. I, it's, it's a difficult thing. Exactly, and that's sort of the question that, that um, I've been writing about at the moment is, is the sort of pervasive uh, suffering that, that humans are afflicted by. And it sounds to me as if you're saying that you're, you would, your, your sort of vision was that you would alleviate suffering, that you would do something about people's pain that you wanted to sort of help people get out of this miserable condition that you'd seen close up. And yeah. as you know from practicing psychiatry, we can do it. I mean, for most patients who came to see me, I felt like I was really helpful. But sometimes I would look out the window of my cozy office helping people one by one, and I would just have this vision as if there was some kind of tsunami sweeping away you know, most of the populace and not much could be done. And that's really a major reason why I started asking these other questions, not why this person is sick and suffering, but why we all are so vulnerable to pain and suffering. Exactly. And I would like to start off with um, the first sentence in this very interesting paper that you've written, or co-written, which is called An Evolutionary Medicine Perspective on Pain and Its Disorders. You start out with quite a... Um, I think for many, surprising uh, way of putting it, you write, pain always seems like a problem, but usually it's part of the solution. Could you elaborate on that? I'd love to and, and learn more about what you think about that, because in, I always thought we, it's natural to think pain is a problem, get rid of it. Yeah. Find a medication, find a drug, preferably find the cause, but whatever you do, get rid of it. Mm. And, and once I started thinking in evolutionary terms, it really became quite obvious that pain wouldn't exist except that it's useful. And not only that, neither would nausea or cough or vomiting or fever or anxiety or depression. That once I realized that all of these different capacities for suffering were shaped by natural selection, it, it really fundamentally changed how I view life and, and my practice. Um, it doesn't mean, it doesn't, you know, the immediate thing, I'm, I'm going to pause right here. A lot of people say, oh, Dr. Nessie says that pain is useful, therefore we shouldn't treat it. I, I even got a, a call from a hospital bed from a, a colleague who was overseas at the time saying, I have bad kidney disease and, and they're telling me I really must take in something for pain. And I told them pain is normal and useful, therefore I shouldn't take anything for pain. And I said, yeah. no, <laughs> no. Um, my work shows that a lot of time pain is normal, but not useful. And that leads us to another conversation. 
<laughs> Actually, um, it does lead us to some, something that you've actually written about previously, but I think many people perhaps haven't heard or haven't thought about, which is the smoke detector principle. Could you explain yes. that to us? Yes, indeed. So, so this came actually from seeing patient after patient in the anxiety disorders clinic, where I spent most of my career at University of Michigan. And I realized what I was doing is blocking a normal response a lot of time with medications. And with regards to pain, I, by that time I'd done my reading and realized that there are people born with no capacity for pain. And those people generally die by middle life because they're not able to protect their bodies from things. Also, as a physician, I knew that if I blocked cough in patients who were post-surgery, they would probably get pneumonia and die. And I started wondering, my goodness, am I harming my patients by depriving them of a normal kind of response? And then I got into something called signal detection theory, which is quite elegant mathematics about, so when should you respond to something where you can't quite tell if it's dangerous or not? And the analogy I often use is one of trying to get water from a watering hole in Africa with only a spear. And you hear a small noise behind a rock. And the noise is, <laughs> if it was, then you would run like mad because it's a lion for sure. And if it was, you know, then it's not a lion. You're fine. But if it's just, um, you want to get water. You can't run every single time you hear anything. So how loud should that sound be before you run? And the calculations are pretty simple. So let's say it takes uh, 100 calories uh, to run away. That's the false alarm cost. And it, say it takes 100,000 calories if you don't run away. Uh, that's how much the lion gets when he eats you. Um, that's a ratio of 1,000 to 1. And when I first did the calculation, I couldn't really believe it, Osa. It was, that meant that, meant that any time the sound was loud enough, to indicate the lion was there with anything greater than a chance of one in 1,000, you should run. And that meant that 999 times out of 1,000, it was a false alarm, but a normal false alarm. And this amazed me. And, and then I started talking to my patients and saying, your problem with panic disorder is you're having false alarms in this system. And those false alarms are normal, but useless. And that was enormously, it's a single most useful conclusion from evolution and medicine that I've found in psychiatry, is just to explain to patients why there's so many false alarms. And so how did your patients typically react to that piece of information? You know, a lot of panic attacks are caused by positive feedback. A person gets a little bit of palpitations in their heart or, or a little bit of unsteadiness, and they think, oh, no, it's happening again. Maybe it's my heart. Maybe it's a uh, stroke. Maybe it's something. Um, and once they realized that it was a normal response, it was protective, about 20% of my patients said, oh, I wish someone had explained that to me before. I'm going to quit worrying about that. <laughs> and they did. Other patients needed exposure therapy or, or medications. We can be really reliably effective in treating panic disorder. And it was, it was amazingly, it, it, before I did this, patients thought, there's something wrong with me. I have a defective brain. I'm not brave enough. But after I started framing things in terms of the normality and the potential usefulness of panic, um, they started thinking of themselves as normal people who were perhaps a bit better protected against danger than other people. Actually, this is bringing us to something that I was planning to bring up later, but which 
fits very well in right now. And that is the fact that so many people are afraid of their feelings and emotions and bodily yeah. sensations. I mean, what you're describing now, when you begin to feel your heart beating and you become afraid of what's happening, which actually exacerbates the uh, panic or actually brings it on. How, how did you think we came to be so um, ignorant about our feelings or estranged from our feelings? I mean, people are afraid of being sad. They're afraid of being jealous. They're afraid of being um, feeling ashamed. Where do you think all that comes from? Well, those of us in psychiatry have often told them that that means there's something wrong with their person's brain. And sometimes that's true, but often it's not true. And our diagnostic systems, as you know, just count the number and severity and duration of symptoms to make a diagnosis. But no doctor in the rest of medicine would do that. I mean, if you have pain in your abdomen, um, the doctor's not going to say, you've had pain for more than two weeks, more than once a day, more than three <laughs> out of a scale of 10, therefore you have abdominal pain disorder. Um, the doctor would say, hey, let's go looking uh, to see if we can find a cause. And, and only if an extensive search finds no cause uh, will you and the doctor likely conclude this might be an abnormality of the pain system itself. Um, so that's a, a way of looking at things. And I think an evolutionary view makes psychiatry more medical. And in instead of looking at emotions as just things that are abnormal because of negative emotions, you start realizing that, that they can be normal. But again, immediately we come up to this thing that most of the time they're not useful. And the smoke detector principle is only one reason. There are several other reasons why they can be normal but useless. Yes. Somehow I think if we were not constrained by time, I think we could keep going for about like 48 hours or something. But we're not going to do that. So I actually have another topic that I would like to bring up. And you have a part of your paper which deals with the relationship between the pain that we call physical, that we localize in, in our bodies outside the brain, and the pain that we label as being psychic or emotional or psychiatric or psychological. And um, could you give us your take on, on like the, the differences and the similarities between these types of pain, if, if indeed they are two different types? Yes, indeed. Actually, could we first talk a little bit about emotions in general? Absolutely. Because that, that makes, makes, makes sense of all of this. And after practicing psychiatry for about 10 years, I realized that I was full-time treating what I called emotional disorders, and I didn't know what emotions were. And so I decided to start studying emotions. And I, read, I tried to read Darwin, you know, and expression of emotions in man and animals. And, and I turned to my big thousand-page textbook of psychiatry, and it had all of one half page about emotions. So I spent a full year reading about emotions and finally came to a very simple conclusion, that is that emotions have been shaped by natural selection to increase our ability to cope in certain situations that have recurred over evolutionary time. So if someone sees a lion and experiences fascination, they die. Um, <laughs> so their genes go away. Uh, if someone experiences abject panic, they're more likely to live. So the first principle here is that negative emotions are useful. And this brings us closer to the relationship between negative emotions and pain. But I'm going to pause here just for a moment. This seems so non-intuitive to people. People 
assume that pain, emotional or physical, means there's, you know, it's abnormal. Get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and I think once we start connecting, as you're suggesting, emotional pain and physical pain, that makes people help to understand that these kinds of emotional pain actually have meaning. Um, usually, sometimes, <laughs> except when they don't. And this is the challenge, I think, for, for a therapist or a physician dealing with emotional pain is to dig in and do the hard work of trying to understand what's happening in that person's life now as an individual that might be causing emotional pain. Or is it just excessive? Um, and one should just treat it like chronic pain, which is not useful at all. A big question I have is, is, is whether a lot of our emotional pain has evolved from our capacities from phys for physical pain. There are a lot of clues about that in what we see in the clinic. For instance, a lot of chronic pain patients experience depression, and a lot of depression patients experience an abnormal sensitivity to pain. I think it should be possible these days to trace the origins and history of genes that regulate pain physically and those that regulate emotional kinds of negative emotions to see if there are, in fact, correspondences there. Um, maybe someone's already done that, but I haven't been able to find that. Yes, I mean, just the sort of um, clinical experience that some antidepressants actually relieve physical pain and some yes. medication which is people take for physical pain actually relieves mental pain uh, suggests that there is not such a uh, clean division between the two. And in That's fact, right. I've spoken to some people who believe that there is no such relevant distinction at all that is just semantic that is actually the same process but we just sometimes label it differently but do you think that there are two different do you think that there's a real difference between the uh, somatic pain and the emotional pain yes i mean the, the most obvious one is that for physical pain you can identify a specific kind of tissue damage that's causing it most of the time uh, for emotional pain, the thing that's arousing it often is really subtle. It has to do with the motivational structure of an individual's life. And since different people are trying to do different things, it might be very different kinds of things that set off that emotional pain. You know, we, we do the people recognize that, you know, emotional pain can be caused by life stress as if stress is one thing. Uh, but I think that a real evolutionary approach to emotional pain is to you know, get to know that individual in enormous detail. And it gets more complicated than that because you were just talking a moment ago about people not wanting to acknowledge their emotional pain. Or, or I think times people have pretty bad kinds of emotional pain that they are psychodynamically able to you know, not pay attention to and not acknowledge. It's there kind of simmering under the surface. But if you ask them, are you jealous? Are you depressed? Are you, are you anxious? They say, no, 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 no. Um, in fact, I remember one woman who came to me with anxiety and after we talked for uh, a couple of sessions, I asked about her anxiety and her marriage and she said, no, everything's fine. Da, 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 da. And then she paused and said, you know, I did tell my husband I'd leave him if I ever caught him drinking again. And I did discover a bottle of vodka in his workshop that he just bought. Oh dear. Hmm? And, I'm not, and I'm not sure what to do about that. Oh my goodness, you know, so, so very often either people consciously or unconsciously just would like to avoid issues. And that's probably a good thing too. 
You know, being constantly aware of all of the difficulties we face, that's no good. It's, we can't solve all our problems or have all the things we want. It's best just to go on and do what we can do. So if we can get people to think that feeling physical pain is very useful. I mean, I think most people would agree to that. It's, it's good to know that you've got a stone in your shoe and it's no, good to know if you're burning yourself on the stove or something so you can remove your hand. And the analogy would be that our emotional pain is protective and that if we can listen to it in a sort of... Um, reasonably unprejudiced way we can learn something and on the other side you're saying that maybe we shouldn't be listening too closely this woman has a husband he's drinking obviously that should put a great strain on their relationship and make the relationship less satisfying but she has somehow decided that she's not going to let this interfere with her everyday life and finally, it comes up, in fact, I mean, she could have said the first time, you know, that this is, I'm in a terrible situation because my husband is drinking and I don't know what to do about it. And I've actually threatened to leave him, but she didn't say that. Yeah. Well, she had threatened to leave him and, and she needs to make good on that threat, you know, if she reveals that she's found the bottle of vodka, otherwise he won't take her seriously anymore. And people are constantly in these impossible dilemmas in life, you know? Yeah. And it's very, very hard to figure out what to do. You know, the, the second reason, other than the smoke detector principle, why a lot of emotions are actually useless for us, even though they're normal, is that these emotions were not shaped for our benefit. They're shaped for the benefit of our genes. And this becomes very salient in, in so many of the problems we see in psychiatry have to do with romance and sex. And why is that? Why do people start unrequited love is a terrible, <laughs> terrible source. Jealousy uh, is a terrible source of, of pain um, and, and anguish when a partner leaves you or, or is mean to you and, and the like. Um, and part of those is what makes life's worth living. On the other hand, um, a lot of times it seems like our emotions are really trying to get us to do things that are good for our genes, but not for us. Um, Lust in particular, people you know, do things uh, that get themselves in trouble and they know they're gonna get in trouble, but they can't really help themselves. And before they know it, they're entangled in something that they didn't really want to be entangled in. And those are the kinds of things that might be good for our genes, uh, but bad for us. Do you know if it's true or if this is a myth? But I remember reading that in, um, in Greenland among the Inuit people, there was an idea that there were some things that you could not be held accountable for. And one of these things was having sex by, with somebody that you really felt attracted to. It was considered that this was beyond our ability to sort of um, influence. It just happened. And uh -huh. so uh, they just acknowledged this extremely strong force that the, the intellect was not capable of, of um, moderating. Do you know if that's true? I don't know if that's true, but, but the way that cultures deal with this is so dramatically different. Mm -hmm. I mean, some cultures, you know, having sex with other people is pretty much okay. And everybody's supposed to just say, well, that's the way people are. 
Um, in other cultures, looking the wrong way at someone will get you stoned by the entire community in a cruel death. Um, it's fascinating how radically different cultures are about this. When you, when you talked a minute ago, though, about you know, people being doing uncontrollable things, I thought you were going to talk about the different situation where someone catches their spouse um, with having sex with someone else. And until recently, if you as a man discovered your wife with another man in bed and you killed him, you weren't held accountable. Exactly. People said that, that that's caused, in the, in, no one can control themselves in that situation. So it's unreasonable to expect someone, uh, those laws have changed, um, but I think human nature has not changed. Yes, I remember being very fascinated by that crime passionnel. It's such a very passionate crime when the, feel, the emotions are just so strong that they override everything. Right, right. And it's, uh, it's an interesting aspect of our emotions that they are so strongly embedded in us. And it sometimes seems to me that our, our poor prefrontal cortex, where we have things like uh, rules that we're supposed to abide by and what we're supposed to do and not do, is, is somehow um, overrun. I think most people will have at some point done something. And it doesn't have to be anything that dramatic. I mean, it can be something as simple as yelling at your kids. I mean, you don't right. want to yell at your kids. You know it's not going to be good for your relationship. You know it doesn't help. But you just get so frustrated that you just scream at them. Right, right. So I've done some writing and a lot more thinking about why are emotions so emotional? Because they, they do take us out of control. Mm. And I've asked myself, so why? I mean, um, it'd be so nice if we could just control our emotions. And a lot of people do think they should be able to control their emotions, and they're usually sadly disappointed <laughs> that they can't just, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to just say, oh, I'm not going to feel sad about that anymore, or I'm not going to feel jealous anymore. I just will stop doing that. Um, that can help a little bit, but, but the emotions are keep festering um, in there. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, game theory and how relationships actually work. I did at one point a book on evolution and commitment. And you know, our, our ability to get along with other people depends on them thinking that we'll do what we say we will do. And that main means that if you say, for instance, I will stay with you in sickness and health, and you can, you can say that convincingly, and the other person says it convincingly, it can be a wonderful thing. On the other hand, if you say, if I catch you drinking again, I'm gonna leave you, you have to follow through on that, otherwise you lose your leverage entirely. And it works negatively as well. Uh, people say, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. And there's a common thing that is essentially a, a commitment uh, to do something that would not be good for the person, but could have great influence on other people. And so I think a lot of human social life and our relationships has to do with, with commitment theory, where we're constantly uh, promising to do things that will not be in our interests in the long run either helping others or harming them. And likewise, they are making commitments to us to do things in the future that will not be in their interests, which is how long-term relationships are possible. Unfortunately, it's not just good relationships, it's problematic relationships uh, based on threats as well. And would you say that this is uh, another aspect of our lives that actually generates pain? Is what pain? Generates pain, which makes the fact that we're paying a heavy price for our committed relationships, that this leads to pain. I mean, if, for instance, um, 
I'm in a re relationship with somebody and uh, he wants to live in the countryside and I don't, but I do it anyway because I want to sort of maintain the relationship. But then I walk around being frustrated by living in the countryside, which I really don't want. Or if I want another child and he doesn't, and I decide to stay in the relationship and then I go around being frustrated because I really would have wanted that, uh, that next child. Or we go ahead and have the child and then he's frustrated because he didn't want another child and feels yeah. the responsibility is, is very sort of, um, well, lessening his, the quality of his life. And negotiating these things is so difficult and crucial. And I think one of the main ways we do that is by forgetting about some of the things we want. <laughs> um, uh, people say, oh, you know, in retrospect, it would have been a real pain to have more kids. Thank you for not you know, doing that. I mean, I, I think a lot of our secular dynamic life uh, exists to make life bearable and relationships better. It's best not to remember every sin of one's partner. In fact, I think it's better not to even notice a lot of the uh, bad things our partners do to us. Just, just don't even notice them. Um, because if you confront them, every one of them, you're never going to have a decent relationship. I, you know, Bob, Bob Privers and, and Dick Alexander, um, when I got into evolution and psychodynamics, and I was inspired by their work. They thought that the unconscious exists so that we can pursue our own selfish goals without even knowing it, so that we can better deceive other people. And that really shocked me. That didn't seem congruent with what I was seeing in the clinic with people lying awake at night, wondering if they'd accidentally not smiled at someone in the, in the street, you know? Um, and so I spent a couple of years actually trying to understand that. And finally, I concluded, sadly, that they were right to some extent, that sometimes we do have unconscious wishes that we're not really aware of. And by not being aware of them, we can deceive other people better. Um, what we used to call hysteria goes in that. On the other hand, my other conclusion was the one we've just been talking about, that if we are able to use that ability to not think about things on a conscious level, to not notice the problems with our friends and our lovers, that's really wonderful because it allows relationships to continue and be good. So um, I would perhaps make the case that instead of not noticing or um, relegating the problems to the unconscious, I might accept them and say, all right, you have this very irritating habit and I accept that this is the way it is. You have so many good things going for you. So I will just accept that, that this is the way you are and I'm not going to try to change it rather than just sort of putting it into my subconscious so that I'm pretending that I don't actually notice. Yes, people also do that as well. A conscious decision to just not, not pay attention to such things. Indeed, that works very well for many people very often. Well, not just a conscious decision not to pay attention to it, but a conscious decision to actually accept this person, words and all. Yes, indeed. Right. Which somehow seems um, like a somewhat different way, way of approaching things. If, you, if you're speaking to somebody who does, who's in this situation that they have the problem, like the woman with the man who's, who's drinking, should she try to ignore it, which is difficult, or should she try to accept the fact that even if he drinks, he probably has a lot of, um, I mean, there must have been some reason for her to have married him, and if he's drinking, he's probably unhappy. 
because he's probably drinking to get away from pain. A lot of people do. Mm. So maybe there's a different way to sort of approach that, to sort of ask yourself what's, what could be made better in his life? Mm. What is he missing? And now you're revealing your sophistication as a therapist, because you know the challenge is to not just say, you know, get rid of these feelings or accept these feelings. The challenge is to try to understand not only the person, but also the relationship and the, and the larger social network. And it's, it's tricky again, because a lot of times junior therapists just dive right in and start telling the person exactly what they think is actually going on and just ignoring the, their defenses. But I think a more respectful view of people and talking more gently with them about things in their life um, often allows people to see things that they were reluctant to see before and sometimes to make difficult decisions that they were not able to make before. Yeah, so, so for that reason, I think the idea of, of um, trying to encourage people not to be conscious of the difficulties that are going on seems uh, somewhat difficult because it's hard to know when to do what, I would yes. think, as a therapist. Although, you know, there's this big, huge transition in human life, I think, after Freud, where we became aware of the unconscious um, and, and knowledgeable that, that there were such things, which led a lot of people to think, well, we should become aware of everything we possibly can. I certainly believe that. Um, go all the way back to Socrates, know thyself, right? It all seems like a good idea. And, and then gradually realize you should know a lot of yourself but maybe everything is too much um, so yeah. I, I think this is something that's so quite un, quite unsettled and very interesting is mm. a famous swedish author who wrote something along the lines i wish i didn't want what i want uh, yes which i think is a very sort of interesting way of talking about the fact that the self is is divided but that our emotions are not always in tune with our intentions in other situations, etc. And, so and now we're right back to what's, what's right about Freud. I mean, I think his, his recognition that we have all kinds of things that we want, uh, that pursuing them would ruin our social lives, uh, yeah. is, is basically correct. And then you have to figure out what to do about it. Um, to be aware of it and not pay attention to it, to be frustrated by it, to just not be aware of it ever. Um, it's, it's, it's a very subtle matter. But would you think that if you decide, I, I'm not going to be aware of this, I want something which is socially unacceptable. And mm. so I have decided not to realize that I want it. Do you think that is more conducive to a fulfilled life than to say that I want this and it's not acceptable, but I could write about it. I could turn it into art. I could write music about it. I could express it some other way, which, which uh, would not be disruptive to my social life. Yes, yes. As an alternative? That certainly works. You could um, acknowledge it, but, but not... Yes. That means sublimation is what the psychoanalysts call yeah, it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's one of the most marvelous ways we humans have of, of, of coping. 
Uh, on the other hand, cultures are changing so fast and, and connection with pain and all brings us to another cultural transition that's relevant. I mean, it wasn't so many years ago that, that people who had you know, submissive wishes and, and got excited by pain um, couldn't tell anybody about that. Yeah, because they didn't get a diagnosis. Right, they would get a diagnosis and have some, somebody try to help them not enjoy painful kinds of sexual anymore. Um, and, and now they can just join a club. Uh, and, they can and, write, and find part yeah and they can write a best-selling book and become millionaires yes right or, or or do a famous movie about it i mean again our culture is changing our own relationship with ourselves i think in ways that you know, who knows where it's all going i mean the the very first in being able to talk with someone in psychotherapy and and have the expectation that that person wouldn't ever tell anyone about it I think that experience by itself changes things and allowed people to get in touch with things that humans had hardly ever been able to get in touch with before, except in very rare circumstances, because confidentiality. And now we've gone to the other extreme where almost everything we do or say can be put on the, on the web in an instant by someone who's mad at us. Um, so it's very confusing to these human brains that evolved in groups of 30 or 40 people, most of whom are relatives. Um, it's, it's very hard to imagine the difference between what we're experiencing and, and life back then. There's so many things that are different. I, I, I think as a sort of bicultural sort of person, back then people had one culture, one language. Or possibly yes. they learned some other language in order to speak to the people of the adjoining adjacent tribe. But you wouldn't have people who'd spent five years in Hong Kong and 10 years in, in some other place, etc., and who had a sort of mosaic of cultural and uh, language identities mm -hmm. so there's so many new things but actually before we i'm getting we're getting behind because this is so interesting but i really want to talk to you about depression as well all right and i liked the um you had this really interesting quote from darwin mm. darwin is somehow good for everything isn't he i mean you can always find a darwin such a polymath right exactly so here's the quote from Darwin that you have in your paper. Pain or suffering of any kind, if long continued, causes depression and lessens the power of action. Yet it is well adapted to make a creature guide itself against any great or sudden evil. And so the idea that if we're subjected to pain or stress for a long time, um, if that happens, we are transported into a state of depression um, is nothing new, obviously. And today, depression is one of the main causes of um, disability-adjusted lost years. Is that right? Mm. Yes. You, you know, it's so disturbing. Like I mentioned about my visions of a tsunami outside my window. Um, you know, 80% of the problems people bring to psychiatrists are depression and anxiety. And, you know, the fact that we could all have brains that were so screwed up just doesn't make sense. Is it then the case that we are all living in societies that are causing way increases, great increases in these things? It's an attractive idea, but I'm not at all sure it's right. And sadly, we don't have data on that. We do know that some cultures have way less depression. In Japan and Korea, rates of depression are less than a fifth. Of United States is the world leader, more depression than really? any other 
Actually, Uganda um, is is higher in and Afghanistan because of the terrible dislocations mm. and things that are, are happening there. Um, but the overwhelming suffering for humans is emotional, and what we can do about it is something we all should be trying to pay attention to. It. And a lot of people say, well, we can use medications if only they worked better. You know, they don't work very well. Some people imagine that my attention to how low mood is useful means that you shouldn't use medications. Absolutely not. I mean, what most doctors do most of the time, whether it's pain, fever, nausea, vomiting, or whatever, is use medications that block normal defensive responses. And so I think most of the time that's safe and wonderfully helpful and we shouldn't neglect it. But first, we should try to see if we can find the cause, um, and just like a regular doctor does. So that, that's my plea. Yes, you're right. how, how, do, how do we go looking for that cause? That's a challenge. So I'm going to read a bit from your um, pain. Um, no, this is actually from your book. This is from your book, Good Reasons for Feeling Bad. Um, Everyone agrees that some symptoms of depression are normal for a time after loss. Everyone also agrees that extreme symptoms of depression are obviously abnormal. But disagreement about how to distinguish normal low mood from abnormal depression is intense and enduring. And here's, I, I love the way you write, here it comes. When so many smart people disagree, something is usually missing. What is missing from debates about depression is knowledge about the origins, functions, and regulation of normal, normal low mood. And then you it have in italics, trying to understand pathological depression without recognizing the evolutionary origins and utility of normal low mood is like trying to understand chronic pain without recognizing causes and utility of normal pain. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. Well, I thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so, but this was a realization I didn't come to until I'd been seeing patients with depression for 15, 20 years. Mm. And that's so embarrassing. I mean, why, should, why wait? I wish every person who treats patients with depression could understand why low mood exists. And it turns out not to be all that simple because um, I mean, as, as you probably know, my, my take on that is that you know, our motivation system needs to be regulated to have higher motivation in good circumstances where effort will pay off, and that there are other circumstances where all the effort we put out there is just wasted. Or worse, sometimes, especially when we're striving for status and other people are putting us down and they've won a battle, the harder we strive, the more they beat on us. And so the, the worse, worse it gets. Um, so it's, it's a subtle business to try to understand this, and it re requires, again, going back to the individual because you can't tell what kind of things a person is frustrated trying to do unless you know their individual wishes and plans and, and desires. But the key word here, the, the key phrase here is the one that my psychiatry residents tell me is the single best thing I've ever taught them. And that is to ask patients, is there something overwhelmingly important you feel you just have to do, but you're not succeeding and you can't give up? Could you repeat and, that again? And so everybody who's listened to this, listen closely because it's the best thing Professor Nessie has uh, contributed to his students and it's going to be great for you too. So say it again. So I, I've actually gotten letters from people who read about my work in The Economist, for instance, saying, Dr. Nessie, once I heard you say um, that depression was caused by pursuing unreachable goals that you couldn't give up, 
I started recognizing that I was wasting my life pursuing a goal that I couldn't give up. And I had to really decide whether to give it up or try a different way. So this whole business of, um, and, and you know, this, this goes all the way back to animals looking for food. Um, if you keep shaking the same tree and no more nuts come out of it, you really should stop shaking that tree. Um, and if you're an optimist who says there must be more nuts out there, that's not very smart at all. Uh, it's much better. And I, I imagine my ancestors um, living on a small island off the coast of Norway in the North Sea. Um, I think there probably were on occasion some optimists who were very perky and positive. And in February, they said, there must be food out there someplace. I'm just going to go find some. Well, many of them never came back. Um, the ones who sat indoors and said, you know what? It's hopeless. There's no food out there. We need to just sit here. Um, they were right, and they survived. Um, now, of course, what we're foraging for these days is not often food. What we're foraging for are relationships and respect and admiration and partners. Um, and that makes it much harder to figure out when we should keep trying and, and not keep trying. And the people who succeed grandly, whether it's in writing or, or business or something, even sports and music, um, they're usually people who keep trying and trying and trying against all odds. And that's the standard movie plot, isn't it? The standard mm -hmm. movie plot is, you know, a person who is told that they can never succeed, keeps trying and trying and trying, and finally, against all odds, becomes the greatest. Um, those stories are wonderful. They never mention the other 999 people who yep. tried. Yeah. And, and I, I think if I had to guess at something that might explain why rates of depression are highest in America, I think it might well be because of this idea that we should all be able to succeed grandly. Um, I mean, colleges only want to admit people, if they possibly can, who are going to transform their fields and, you know, yeah. be, be great. I mean, how about room for people who just want to live? Yeah. Why, why can't we just accept that and, and others and ourselves? And, and again, I fear it's because of our genes. You know, I, I think our genes are encouraging us to strive for greatness and admiration and money and power and sex. And it's not available to everyone all the time. I think, I don't know what it's like in the United States, but I think in, in Sweden at least, there's been a sort of shift from actually making sure to get to know the patient before you start treating them to going through a symptom checklist and deciding mm -hmm. that, well, you know, you tick the right amount of boxes and here's what we do for that. And so then you're treating somebody without knowing anything about their relationships. We don't know anything about what they're striving towards, if it's going to if it has any chance of succeeding or not, how well they're doing. You actually are treating the symptoms without making the effort to understand where they come from. So what can we do to make it more popular and more interesting and more, um, well, to make the young, young therapists and the young psychiatrists believe that getting to know the patient is actually a very good thing for the treatment. You know, it, it flies in the face of economics. Um, it does. Psychiat psychiatrists are expensive to train and expensive to pay. Uh, you can pay someone less to do talking kinds of things. And I mean, I mean my, my, what I would love to see Usa, is for 
psychiatrist to take the same kind of care in a diagnosis that other doctors do yeah. and, and actually go into great depth. I mean, if we can afford, you know, 10,000 euros for a fancy scan for someone, you'd think we could afford to have someone spend an hour or two actually trying to understand that person's life in detail. On the other hand, that tsunami I mentioned of suffering means that um, there's so many people who need so much help that there's no way we can have every psychiatrist with every depressed patient do a full detailed analysis. I've talked with some college classmates who went to work for a large healthcare system in this country, and they were quitting psychiatry after doing it for 10 years. Why? Because their assignment was to see new patients every half hour. Well, hmm. make a diagnosis. And, and then they were supposed to return for return visits where they were seen for 20 minutes and given a new prescription. And I mean, I was outraged by that, but then I start imagining, what if I were in charge of mental health for a state or a country? Would I use, would I use my precious psychiatry resources to you know, do super duper care for a few people? Or would I want to use their special skills and have other people uh, do the rest? I mean, my solution for this more practically though, is to have a, a schema. I mean, right now we're having people do checklists of stressful life events. Um, and I don't think those get to, you know, what's actually going on in an individual's life. And I propose something called a motivational structure analysis or life situation analysis, where you ask people systematically about the six main areas in their life. And there has to be a mnemonic for such things, otherwise doctors won't use it. And this one is S-O-C-I-A-L. Um, and, 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 and you ask a person, what's going on in your social network? in your groups and your friends and, and your relationships with community members. What's going on with, oh, your occupation? How are things going? Is there something you do that other people really appreciate? What about C, children and family? How are things going with your kids? How are things going with your, your relatives? I is, how about your income? Do you have enough money? Are you badly in debt? Or are you struggling every single time to avoid the debt collectors? A has to do with abilities and appearance and health, your personal resources. How are things going there? And L has to do with love and sex. And if you, I mean, those are the, actually the same six categories that behavioral ecologists use when they're analyzing how animals yeah. allocate their efforts. So there's a good foundation in biology for this, but it still can't be done all that quickly because you, you have to try to figure out what that person's trying to do in life and, and what their relationships and social network is like, unless you can do it in 20 minutes. And that gives you um, at least a foundation for trying to understand that person's life. But let's talk about the tsunami for a minute. Um, you have this huge tsunami of distressed people floating by outside your office window. Mm. And then you have this idea that if you're going to have bright, committed, well-trained psychiatrists, one per person, the equation just does not matter. It doesn't work out. Yes. But is there anything to prevent people from doing this for themselves? I mean, is there anything to prevent me from sitting down and thinking, well, these are the sort of six categories that normally are important for any mammal. I need to find a mate, I need to sort of be able to clean myself, I need to have appropriate social connections. And how am I doing and where would I need to sort of put in some more effort or where would I need to, to stop trying for something? I mean, why, why do we have to think that we necessarily need guidance from outside if we can just understand that 
the, I'm, I'm sort of thinking that these motivational systems, as you said, are biological. And thus, it's not really much to discuss. We've got them in the same way as we've got two lungs and one liver, etc. Right. And if we could just accept that, instead of thinking that I have to sort of somehow philosophically decide what the meaning of my life is and what I should be doing, if we just accept that we have these basic biological needs, mm -hmm. um, wouldn't that help? So your question is profound, actually. And, I, and I'd love to talk with you perhaps another time Uso, about this because um, I have reasons for hesitating um, to have people look too closely at things that they might want to, not to look at, you know, for fear of causing more suffering. On the other hand, um, uh, I got a wonderful note from someone who had read my book and said, you've helped me so much. Now, every single morning before I start my day, I analyze how I'm doing in S-O-C-I-A-L and I allocate my effort to those areas that I really need to put the effort into. And it's helped me enormously. And Mike, I've, I've even thought of putting something on the web yeah. so anybody, anybody could do it for themselves. But now let's way back up. I mean, these problems are not new. And mm -hmm. people have been trying to find solutions for suffering for so long. And this is a lot of what religions offer. And I think most religions, one way or another, um, get people off the hedonic treadmill. They get them off of this constant pursuit of satisfying desire. The Buddhists do it most straightforwardly, pointing out that all of these desires we have are illusions. And my pointing out that these desires often are good for our genes, not us, I mean, that's very congruent with the Buddhist view. When Christianity, other religions also, they all try to cope with desires and social constraints some way or another uh, by encouraging people to do what's good, not what's, you know, not what's just beneficial for your genes and pleasure. Um, so I think these are old, old issues. And those solutions, I think, are very effective for many people. Um, they're not available uh, to many modern people. And, and you may be right, maybe helping them to you know, understand the simple biology behind our pursuits and trying to figure out which things should you try to accomplish in a different way and which things should you just give up on. I think the depressed patients I've cured the most dramatically are those where we've had a conversation like this and the person says, you know what, now that you mention it, I'm never ever going to get my wife to have sex with me and I've got to just stop doing that. I'm just, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. or, I, or a very sad case I saw of a woman who's dedicating her life to getting her kid off, off opiate drugs. And we talked about that and are all your efforts to doing that helping your child? No, they're not. Gosh, maybe I'm not even doing her any good. Maybe I'm just making myself miserable for no purpose. And that, that's a whole different kind of insight. You know, it's not an insight as to some old trauma from an early experience. It's an insight about one's current life. Um, but, but I'm going to go on immediately and say maybe we could talk later. I do worry about, you know, having some kind of a structure that makes people more aware of what they don't have. Well, I think that's a fascinating topic. And actually, um, I was just thinking to add that um, practicing Buddhists will, will well, the Buddhist idea is that craving causes suffering, mm -hmm. which is basically what you're saying, that we're, we're sort of craving things that we can't have for various reasons, and this is the sort of root of suffering, which I think is... If, if, if only we could turn it off. <laughs> you <laughs> know, um, <laughs> we can't. Um, uh, 
another, well, uh, I think I will move on to the next last question. We could, as I've said earlier, we could go on forever about this. And I it's, wish one, it's wonderfully fun talking with you. So, well, same to you. So, my next to last question is um, not one that has a sort of answer that could be right or wrong, but I would just like you to think about what you think the future of pain is. Where will we be in our relationship to pain in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, both from an individual and a societal perspective? Discuss. You know, this, this conference that the Royal Society in the UK put on about evolution and pain, I thought was very hopeful because people are trying to study the pain system in terms of its origins and functions and why it goes wrong. I mean, that's the central question for evolutionary medicine. Why are these systems vulnerable? And in that case, um, one of the big conclusions we came to in, in my paper, it is that a lot of these systems are self-sensitizing. Um, for instance, if you repeatedly experience hammering your thumb, um, that thumb doesn't become inured to pain, it becomes more sensitive to pain for the very good reason that whatever, however, however much pain you're having is not enough to protect you. And I think with anxiety, it's the same. Um, and I think with, with mood as well, if, if you're continuing to do things, all of these systems have a built-in evolved mechanism to adjust how sensitive they are, depending on your circumstances. And if they're not doing their job and bad things are happening, then they tend to become more sensitive. And that leads to a positive feedback cycle, the vicious circle, in which you can get ordinary pain becoming chronic pain. And this leads me to the hopeful part about what you're suggesting about where we're going in 10 or 15 years. I mean, I think it may be possible to understand the mechanisms that lead ordinary pain to becoming chronic pain so that we can disrupt that positive feedback cycle. Certainly with behavior therapy, that's what we do for anxiety. Um, instead of anxiety causing avoidance, causing more anxiety, we, we break that feedback cycle and we can deal with anxiety fairly straightforwardly. I also think that medications, I mean, every 10, 15 years, someone comes out with a new analgesic that they say, it's not addicting, but it's going to solve pain. I mean, heroin was invented because it was not addicting and, and would relieve pain. We've never found anything like that yet. And we've never found anything dramatically effective for our emotional pain that's reliable and very effective and not, not causing too many side effects. But I think we might yet. Okay, you really do. You think that it's possible to, if you imagine the colossal relief that you get when pain uh, ceases, is it sort of conceivable that any kind of drug or intervention that will automatically take your pain away would not be addictive? That's another question. Um, I mean, there, there are, I mean, there's so many different pathways involved in pain, aren't there? Yeah. And there are the, rece the receptors at your finger, there's a neurotransmission, there's the spinal ganglia, there are the lower parts of the brain <coughs> and the upper parts of the brain. And you know, different drugs work in different places. Um, so I think, I think it's possible, that it, it will be possible to, to do something like that. But then we go to the next, I'm sure where your mind is going is, what would life be like? I mean, what if we have some kind of soma pill that's cheap and effective and can relieve people's emotional suffering. Um, gosh, it would relieve so much suffering, we should do it. And people would do it. I mean, they, I know they will do it because they take illegal drugs now to, to relieve their suffering. Um, but it will transform us. 
Yes, maybe it'll never happen. Maybe natural selection. I mean, actually, over the very long run, I think that um, people who continue to experience pain and desire um, will outreproduce others over the next many thousand years. So we'll probably still be more of the same. And also, I wouldn't want to be the child of a parent who never experienced negative emotions. I mean, who didn't become frightened if I ran out uh, in the street, right. away, or who didn't worry if I got sick. Right. And so I think in parenting, which is quite stressful uh, for most of us, our, our painful emotions make us better parents. Up to, up to some degree. And, and, and that's an example of which, I mean, hey, those bad feelings aren't doing us good. They're just doing our genes good because those exactly. genes are in our kids. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to them. Exactly. <laughs> Taking care of our kids is the most primal responsibility of all of us. And, it's, and because it's so primal, this is, the, I mean, it's, it's, it would be strange if the children didn't generate anxiety and uh, worry and sadness if, if they're not feeling well. So, so. And, and you can't, you can't, I can't put it aside when I'm worried about my kids. You, you just can't get rid of it. Um, well, you're not supposed to, I think. You're supposed to. Exactly, exactly so. I'm thinking as a biologist again. Mm -hmm. you've, got your, you've got your offspring and, and you should be doing everything you can to sort of keep right. them as happy and healthy and alive as possible. Right. So my absolutely last question is, um, I always ask if, if somebody had, well, if you have a, sh a private pain remedy that you would like to share, which is not sort of dangerous or addictive or expensive, something that you personally do if you have a day when you're feeling not on top of the world, a strategy that you would like to share with us. I wish I had something secret and fabulous. And that's what people always want is something secret and fabulous. But, you know, exercise works very well. Distraction works very well. And talking with friends works very well. Um, it's only at times when you can't do those things, I think, when, when pain really gets so bad. And I must say, living here in Arizona, instead of in Stockholm or in Michigan, um, we, have some, we have a special, special something here. Um, that relieves a certain kind of suffering. It's called sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and I think people are happier here because the sun shines almost every day of the year. Uh, and it just, it just is so good for our, our souls. Um, Imagine. And, uh, so here in Stockholm, where we at the moment have very little sun, we tried to um, cope by lighting candles indoors and sort I of love the candles at the restaurant doors yes sort of cozy environment and so we're actually enjoying the dark as well and then we know that it will soon pass it will soon pass uh, is there anything I should have asked you that I forgot or missed well, we've had a wonderful conversation and I'd like to learn more about your book on pain um, I, I wish they would translate it to English so we could all have the benefit of that uh, well, just talk to your publisher I should. And Definitely. I should probably put in a plug for my book if people are interested in these ideas Definitely. we've talked about. Yeah, do uh, it's called Good Reasons for Bad Feeling. I think it's in 15 languages now, but not Swedish. Uh, if anyone would like to undertake a translation, that'd be lovely. Uh, the information's at 
goodreasons.info. Goodreasons.info is the website where there's more information about the book. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Usa. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll be getting back to each other soon, I hope. I look forward to that. All right. Bye. Bye. It's this, it's me. I love the way it hurts. Den här podcasten är producerad av Fri tanke och modern psykologi. Vignettlåten är Statue, eller The Pill Song, från albumet Soul Prince. Musiken är skriven och framförd av Smith och Tell under licens från Playground Music Scandinavia och Playground Music Publishing.